welcome back to True Crime 365. My name is B, and as always, I will be talking to you today about some pretty gruesome stuff. Um, this is episode one in the Zodiac Killers series. So this particular episode is not about the Zodiac Killer, but we'll be going through um, the entire Zodiac from Aries through to Pisces and profiling some serial killers who belong to those groups. So the f- uh, the first one that we're doing today is Aries. And so to give, I'm really excited about this, this series because I'm, you know, I'm very much into astrology and all that kind of stuff. So it's really, you know, really interesting to profile and cover murderers who belong to certain, um, certain star signs and what their traits are, because as you all know, like serial killers often have uh, similar traits in themselves, but what is it that makes them different? And so I, I found a couple of articles that list a lot of uh, notorious serial killers in their star signs and decided to start off with the first of the zodiac signs, which is Aries. So a bit of background on Aries. Um, my brother is in Aries. Uh, my moon is in Aries when we go further into the birth charts. Um, you know, this is a, this is the first of the zodiac signs. So these are the leaders of the zodiac. Um, they're people born between March 21st and April 19 will fall into the Aries category. Um, their strengths are that they're courageous, determined, confident, enthusiastic, optimistic, passionate, um, but their weaknesses are that they are impatient, moody, short-tempered, impulsive, and aggressive. So when it comes to serial killers, that's something that definitely um, definitely feeds into that, as well as, as, well as that they are also... Um, they tend to want people to prove to them uh, that they're worthwhile. So a lot of people in their lives, if they don't show their worth, they tend to get rid of them pretty quickly. And um, that's kind of how they operate. So let's go into my the first killer on our Zodiac Killers series list, and that is the Happy Face Killer. Again, please bear with me. I am still sick um, from the last couple of weeks, so... There may be some breaks for me to cough. All right, so let's begin. In Portland, Oregon, in the United States, on uh, January 23rd, 1990, 23-year-old Tanya Bennett heads to a local bar called the B&I Tavern, and she's, like, out hoping to meet some friends. It's, like, a rain, rainy, cold night. She's she's heading out there, and um, when she arrives, she grabs a drink at the bar, and she's switching throughout the night between beer and wine coolers, and she starts this conversation up with um, a group of guys, and she's playing pool with them, and... One of the really, uh, this really tall, burly guy starts talking to her and, you know, if you looked at him, you would think he wouldn't really notice someone like her, but he'd been watching her the whole night. And he was in his mid thirties and he was six foot seven and an intimidating figure. And, um, Tanya's described by her family to be a bit slow mentally. And, uh, she agrees to go to dinner with, um, with a stranger and he says, Oh shit, I don't have my wallet. Let's just go back to mine. We'll grab it and then we'll go get some dinner. Anyway. So she agrees to go home with this guy to get the money. And um, when she gets there, he starts to try and initiate sex with her and she refuses. And this man kind of changes into a very aggressive kind of bloke. And he, he becomes a right, 
abusing her and taunting her and kind of like playing with her emotions a bit before striking her and beating her. And um, he had one hand around his neck and with the other hand around her neck and with the other hand he grabs a rope and wraps it around her and chokes her to death. And he left the body at his home and then returned to the bar to grab a few more drinks. And he was like sitting in the bar talking to as many people as he could so that I guess to cement an alibi and so that people would see him and see that he'd been there. A few days later, Tanya's body is found near Crown Point and she's half dressed, badly beaten and strangled. One of her teeth had uh, gone through her bottom lip. And there was no leads on where, um, who could do this to her because he was already long gone. So around the same time after this started getting reported, a woman named Laverne Pavlinak, I think, um, she was watching TV and she saw all these, these reports about this murder, about this body that had been found. So she calls the police anonymously and says, this was done by my boyfriend. He's aggressive. He's abusive. He's a horrible bloke. Um, you know, this is him anyway. So that lead gets kind of ignored. And then she calls again anonymously and the same thing happens. So she calls the last time and she says, this guy is my boyfriend. This is the guy who killed, um, Tanya Bennett. And so she goes and she meets with uh, the police and she gives a confession stating that her longtime boyfriend, John Sosnovsky, uh, forced her to help rape and murder Tanya Bennett and uh, cover it up. The thing is, though, the police were really keen on this confession. They were like, holy shit, this is solved. It's done. Like, we've we've managed this within a few days. Like, this never happens. I can't believe this has happened. The confession was false. Pavlinak saw the murder as an opportunity to rid herself of an abusive relationship. Um, The confession she gave contained details of the murder that she read in the paper and saw on TV. In February 1991, both Pavlinak and Sosnovsky are convicted of murder. And Sosnovsky pleads guilty um, because he wants to avoid the death penalty. And Pavlinak gets no less than 10 years, which is to her a lot more than she actually anticipated as an accessory to murder. So she's been incarcerated. She's in prison for this false confession because she's trying to get her boyfriend locked away because he's abusive. And she says, no, 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 this didn't happen. I was lying and no one believes her. So the real killer is still at large. The real killer was uh, getting frustrated that someone else had taken the credit for his crimes because he's a serial killer and that's kind of what they're like. Um, And he wrote a confession on a truck stop wall, signing it with a smiley face. But no attention was paid to the writing on the wall and he carried on leaving the truck stop to find his next victim. Forward uh, five years, March 10, 1995, in Washington. I'm butchering that, but I am sorry. I don't know your cities. So five years after the murder of Tanya Bennett, Julie Ann Winningham is strangled to death by her boyfriend, Keith Hunter Jesperson. Jesperson. And the investigation into Jesperson reveals more than the investigators could have ever anticipated. So a little background on this guy, uh, Je- uh, Keith Hunter Jesperson. He, his parents are Les and Gladys, and he was the middle child of two brothers and two sisters. 
His father was an alcoholic who abused his family, and Jesperson was like a really big kid. He was teased um, throughout his life for his size. So he was abused at home and bullied at school, so he kind of felt like an outcast his entire life. And um, he took to torturing and abusing animals at a young age, which is very common of a serial killer. At some point, his family made the move to Cellar in Washington, but it didn't help his troubles when they moved. He still struggled to fit in. Um, His brothers really didn't help because they gave him the nickname Igor, and that stuck through high school. So uh, throughout his youth, his violent behavior got him into strife, having he attempted to kill two kids who crossed him. The first one was at 10 years old. He attempted to beat his friend, a boy called Martin, to death, but was stopped by Martin's father. Um, apparently they got into a fight. And the other attempt came after he um, he was held underwater at a local lake until he blacked out by this kid. And then not long after, he went to the public pool and he saw this same boy. So he grabbed the kid's head, held it underwater, and waited for him to drown. Uh, then he was pulled off pulled away from the lifeguard so the boy survived but Jesperson was 11 years old when this happened so he's very young offender it started very early um whenever Jesperson would misbehave his father would beat him with a belt um very violently and on one occasion he actually gave him an electric shock Despite all this, Jesperson went on to graduate high school and in uh, 1974, he secured a job as a truck driver. In 1975, he married Rose Huck um, and they went on to have two, uh, three children, two girls and a boy. And it seemed that he kind of turned his life around and he had this dream to join the Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman. So he's, um, he's got this this new family and he's everything's kind of going all right he's not a great husband but he's not abusive so they ended up divorcing in 1990 because uh rose was getting phone calls from strange women and she'd answer it and be like who the hell are you and she goes oh i'm keith's girlfriend and she goes okay well this is his wife and hang up on them so eventually this led to their divorce and around the same time jesperson was um training at like trained to be the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and he suffered an injury during training that uh, ended the chances that he of him joining. So he returned to truck driving. His marriage was over. His dreams were squashed. And then in January 1990, he met a drunk Tanya Bennett at the B&I, B&I Tavern in Portland, Oregon. So on March, <laughs> March 10, 1995... Jesperson comes to the conclusion that his girlfriend, Julie Winningham, is only interested in him for his money. So going back to that Aries trait of if people aren't uh, useful or worth your respect, they kind of get rid of them. Usually that's in the case of saying, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. Jesperson decides to strangle her instead. Um, So, of course, he's the prime suspect in his girlfriend's murder, but they have no grounds on which to arrest him. He refuses to talk to the police, but it turns out uh, that he wrote a letter to his brother confessing to eight murders as well as the murder that he was already suspected for. He knew his time as a free man was running out, so he attempts to kill himself twice, fails obviously twice, um, and he turns himself in uh, for Julie's murder. March 30. So he's arrested. He confesses to the murder of his girlfriend and revealing to the police a series of unsolved slayings. So these are the 
victims of um, Keith Hunter Jesperson from 1992 to 1995. So we already know in 1990 about Tanya Bennett. So this is from there. August 30, 1992, two years after Jesperson's first murder, a woman was found raped and murdered. She's still unidentified. Jesperson referred to her as Claudia, but this is the only confession that they have. um, This is the only link that they have to the other murders. She's still a Jane Doe. A month later in Tulloch, California, the body of 32-year-old Cynthia Lynn Rose, a sex worker, is discovered. November 1992, the body of Laurie Ann Pentland, another sex worker from Salem, Oregon, is found. In June 1993, another unidentified victim is found in uh, Santanella, California. Um, Her death was originally believed to be from a drug overdose, but Jesperson confesses that she is his third victim. He claims her name is Cindy or Carla, again, still unidentified. September 1994, yet another Jane Doe was found in Crestfield, Florida. Florida, Jesperson said that her name was Suzanne. Again, that's not for sure. January 1995, Jesperson meets a woman named Angela Surbreeze, and he agrees to give Angela a lift from Spokane to Indiana. She travelled with him for a week uh, in his truck, and she began to get agitated and... um, She was getting impatient. She really wanted to get home to her boyfriend. Jesperson got frustrated with her nagging, so he rapes and kills her. He then ties her body face down to the back of his truck and drags it behind the vehicle, grinding her skin on the roads to remove her face and fingerprints. Two months later, he strangles Julie. So Julie was kind of his... La, his mistake in the sense that all of his uh, all these other women have been um considered you know quote unquote street people or uh, sex workers people that um don't have family that have really missed them whereas julie was related to him very closely as his girlfriend so like many serial killers keith hunter jesperson liked to toy with the police and wanted the tension and notoriety for his crimes the moniker of the happy face killer was given to, given to him by Phil Stanford of the Oregonian. It's a newspaper. Um, after Jesperson sent letters to the media and the police detailing his crimes, and he signed each one of those uh, letters with a happy face. There's also pictures of Jesperson's actual autograph, which <laughs> like his signature, and it has a happy face at the end. So that's he's like he's he's a bit cocky about it. So, Keith Hunter Jesperson is sentenced to three consecutive life sentences on June 3rd, 1998. He's then extradited to California to face charges for the murder there, and he's given a fourth life sentence on January uh, 2010. And he's currently serving that in uh, somewhere in Oregon. Oh, uh, I think it's near Salem, a prison near Salem. So in 2008, Jesperson's eldest daughter, Melissa G. Moore, goes on the Dr. Phil show to speak about her father's crimes. In 2009, she's featured on the Oprah show. Um, And then she publishes a book called Shattered Silence, the untold story of a serial killer's daughter. So I didn't really know about this killer until I saw Melissa on uh, Crime Investigation Channel here in Australia. 
And she is also on Monster in My Family. She's like episode, season one, episode one. And she goes and talks to the family of, I think, Tanya Bennett, the first victim. Um, she, in that episode, she pretty much meets this woman and the woman says, look, this whole investigation, everything about it has been about your father. It's never been about the victims. It's always about the guy who did all the damage. And um, so she kind of, it kind of opens her eyes a little bit about how she's focusing a lot on her, her dad and it's always really about her dad. And so moving into this, she's actually uh, part of victim advocacy. She's hoping to bring a spotlight away from offenders and onto the victims of these uh, crimes. All in all, Keith Hunter Jesperson confessed to killing over 160 women, but only eight mention could be attributed to him. They think he was just bullshitting to try and get a, um, you know, a bit more notoriety. His work as a truck driver allowed him to travel across the country undetected and unsuspected. His crime spanned across the United States with murders committed in California, Oregon, Washington, Wyoming, Florida, and Nebraska. Then his victims were usually sex workers or street people, quote-unquote. Women who weren't connected to him wouldn't be missed, and some of the women were still are still identif- unidentified, unaccounted for. Um, their families will never know what happened to their daughters. And that is the story of the Happy Face Killer, the first in the Zodiac series. So, <laughs> this is a weird one. There's a lot of information on it. A lot of people have written really... Um, like in-depth stories about the happy face killer and everything that he's done. There's a lot of really good documentaries about it. Melissa Moore is really interesting. Melissa G Moore, because um, Melissa Moore is a porn star. Um, So Melissa G Moore is the happy face killer's daughter. um, And she, her book's really, um, apparently really interesting. She's really involved in victim advocacy now. So yeah, check her out. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of True Crime 365. I will see you next week when we cover Taurus. Bye. (music) 